Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Firstly, I really hope that you, your family and colleagues are all safe and well at this difficult time. Today's episode is one that I recorded just under two months ago, and it's amazing how much the world has changed in that time. Now, for some of you listening today, this episode could possibly be the most valuable episode of Climbing Consulting that I have ever recorded. And while the topics we discuss may not be top of your list right now, the principles and advice that today's guest shares will certainly help you when we start to emerge from this current crisis. So, who is today's guest and what makes this episode such a valuable one? Well, today I speak to Paul Collins founder and chairman of Equitech, the leading M&A advisory firm for the consulting sector. Over the last 16 years, Equitech has helped over 100 consulting businesses successfully realize value through a sale or inward investment, guiding them on what they need to do to set themselves up for sale, and then helping them navigate the often challenging sales process itself. Paul's journey into the world of consulting M&A started with his own experience when he sold his consulting business, WCI, to private equity for $100 million in 2002. 
he saw firsthand how little support there was available for consulting firms in the current M&A market and decided to launch Equitech to help fill that gap. In today's conversation, we go deep into the world of M&A and dig into everything you need to know if you are growing a consulting business with the view to sell it at some point in the future. Even if you're not, much of the advice that Paul shares is equally applicable for you and will help you build a stronger foundation from which to grow your firm. To give you an idea of what's to come, some of the topics we discussed today include what determines the valuation of a consulting business and how just some small adjustments to your operating model and to your business can have a huge impact on the ultimate valuation you receive, what you need to do to set your firm up for success from the outset, and those key functions that are often so overlooked in consulting that actually by establishing you will have a much better chance of selling your business in the future, and Paul's candid advice from his own experience on how to balance growing your business with maintaining a happy and healthy personal life. In an industry as broad and diverse as consulting, there's very few people who are known industry-wide, people whose reputation precedes them and are known by firms big and small. Paul is one of those people. So with the build-up done, grab your notepad. I know you're going to want to take a ton of notes from this one. Find a comfortable chair, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Paul Collins. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So there's, there's so much for us to talk about, and I, I will shortly ask you to, to introduce yourself. But I, I also, and I was really keen to find this out when you teased me on the emails we exchanged just before this around your, your holiday, because what is it you, you went to do? Extreme fly fishing. I, I know what fly fishing is, but you traveled halfway across the world to do this. And I just love, because I'm sure others would be curious, what is it? Well, it's the fastest growing part of the fly fishing sport is something called saltwater fly fishing. And the great thing about saltwater fly fishing is that you do it in places as opposed to trout and salmon which most people know about which are done in cold places and I'm a bit, a bit of a hothouse flower really right I don't like going cold places so when I heard about this about 20 odd years ago I, I launched myself at it and it's fishing for it's very similar they're game fish just like trout and salmon they're species that most people have never heard of so bonefish tarpon giant trevally the giant trevally probably is the most famous one because of the blue planet series with the uh, the image of the fish coming out of the water to take a bird mid-flight that's a giant trevally and that's what I fish for I mean far-flung places like the Cook Islands I've just come back from and the Seychelles and other nice uh, nice parts of the world so yeah it's a, it's a great sport to do I'll be honest I've, I've never been that keen on the idea of fishing but that's mainly because I see people on the side of the Thames or, or other rivers in the cold and the rain and I know before this you were, you were illuminating me on how people can fish while sitting in a tent which will um... yeah I, I, mean, I don't wish to <laughs> demean those who sit in their bivvies and, uh, and, and catch carp all day right but um, uh, but no this is a very a very active sport i have to train for it i have to keep fit for it and uh, if, if if those of you uh, track your steps then then i average about 20 25000 steps wading through water uh, in often quite uh, difficult circumstances to catch these fish and they can win they're, they're big fish on the end of a very light fly rod and there's usually lots of predators around who want to take the fish you're trying to catch as well so it, it has its challenges but it's great fun it sounds like a phenomenal hobby and one that I, i'm really keen to to dig into if we have time sure. but as as we both know that there, there are tons of things that we want to touch on today and I think before we dive into it actually for those who who maybe don't know you it'd be great if you could give an overview of of your your background and how you got to where you are today 
Yeah, so I um, try and make it quick because uh, I always say it is I've had several careers and uh, I started off life being trained in engineering. My degree was in electronic engineering from Birmingham University. And I went from there into a, a graduate apprenticeship with Lucas Industries. And back then they were automotive and aerospace parts companies. And uh, I joined the grad apprenticeship scheme for 18 months because, frankly, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And the great thing about that was that it got me around all of the different functions. So I got to see finance and marketing and sales and manufacturing, engineering. And I ended up at the end of that in the manufacturing engineering department. And, uh, and at the very young age of about 21, 22, I had responsibility for the design and build of an entire manufacturing facility that was making something called the electronic control unit for the back then the tornado aircraft which became very famous because of its vertical takeoff uh, capabilities and uh, if you've been to any air show then then you'll have seen one of these and I had the job of, of building this facility which 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 was a fantastic responsibility and, and experience but at the, at the end of three years I decided that even though I, I loved doing what I was doing it wasn't the best place to get paid so I I answered a, 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 a daily Thursday's Daily Telegraph was where, if you're an engineer, was where you got your jobs from. And there was a, a, a double page spread with pictures of windsurfers and sailing boats with the title Engineers on the South Coast. And I answered that, and it was it was IBM in their haven't plant as was back then, and uh, joined them as a manufacturing engineer, just about double my salary overnight, and ended up being responsible for liaising between the development departments, mostly in, in the USA and bringing new products that were designed for manufacturing that I was involved in into manufacturing in Havent. And that was fantastic as well. But, but my, my really big break that led to where I am now was being awkward enough to challenge everything to do with their supply chain logistics in IBM. And, I, and it became a pain in the butt, I think, to my management. And they ended up sending me to this seminar in New York. And I was the only Brit in amongst a hundred other sort of IBM staffers listening to this guy called Dr. Richard Schoenberger, who just released a book called uh, Japanese Manufacturing Techniques, Nine Steps uh, uh, to Simplicity. And this was the early JIT, just-in-time manufacturing material. And it, it was honestly like a religious experience for two days. At the end of the day, he'd undid everything I knew to be true about manufacturing. I remember the guy answering a, a question from a very snotty-nosed um, senior guy in IBM about manufacturing and saying that, uh, you know, he'd been doing this for 30 years. And D Dick Schoenberger's response to that was, he said, it's been my experience that doing the wrong thing for 30 years can only produce a wrong outcome going forwards. And, and I, I just <laughs> love that sort of thing. So it was real heretical stuff. But at the end of the second day, I was, I was was a zealot. I was absolutely an apostle of, of Schoenberger and came back to the UK. And I got the job of running a just-in-time program for the UK in IBM, which again, at, you know, sort of 26 or something, whatever it was I was then, was, a, was an amazing thing to do. And they had a bottomless budget to send me around the world to learn about just-in-time. I managed to use uh, Richard Schoenberger as a, as a consultant, and I became an internal consultant in IBM, teaching everybody how to do just-in-time manufacturing. And um, this was in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And frankly, there was virtually no one around in the UK that was doing JIT then. So I built up a really valuable knowledge base that I frankly thought I would never get a return on in, in IBM. And so, so left IBM, which at the time nobody did, was kind of a job for life, and uh, went to work for A.T. Carney, who were about 30 people on a little office in Piccadilly at the time. And I did that to, to frankly, sorry, ATK, to pick your brains about how to run a consulting business with the intention of setting 
set in my own up, which I did a, a year later. And that was the start of what became WCI. I originally called it JIT Technology, which was a really dumb thing to do because uh, a little later, JIT got a bit of a bad name for causing stockouts in, uh, in various industries like the pharma industry. But, but changed the name to uh, originally through World Class International, which was another big name and a bit ballsy when you're only one person. Um, I, think, I think I used my auntie's address in Australia to get the international bit of the name to get it to work. But then, then eventually the marketing man came in and we, and we abbreviated it to WCI because it fitted on logos and things and World Class International didn't and started the, the, the business there. Wine forward 16 or 17 years and we were 350 consultants before I left. I sold the business to uh, private equity in 2002 for 50 million pounds, made 11 millionaires in, in the business, which I'm very proud of. And I, I did okay, thank you. Uh, so, so it was a, a great thing. And, um, and then the age of I think it was 50, tried to retire, uh, failed miserably, and then set up Equitech. And uh, I know that we'll, we'll talk a lot more about Equitech as, as we go on. But I, I started Equitech because, frankly, I'd had lousy support from the investment bank in an M&A community in WCI. And, um, and being the, the arrogant consultant that we often are, I thought I could do it better. Um, and, uh, and that's how Equitech came about. And you're quite right. We're we're going to spend a lot of time digging into to Equitech and what you do. And, and as I said before the show, I'm, I'm really keen, um, given all of your experience and the number of deals that you've done as a firm, to, to dig into that because a lot of my listener base are consulting entrepreneurs yeah. or people who want to become consulting entrepreneurs. And actually, I think like you said, there with Silicon Valley now, you hear a lot of the the high level statistics of you know it's sold for X times multiple or, or yeah. Y times revenue, but actually. I'm sure, and, and if it's not, it might be a much shorter podcast, but I'm sure nothing's <laughs> that simple. And, it's not. No. <laughs> but I, maybe just before we dive into that, actually, for those who haven't heard of Equitech, and I know a lot yeah. in the industry have, but actually, if you were stopped by someone in the street and they said, you know, what does Equitech do? Yeah. Well, what is the, what's your answer to that? Well, we're, we're a strange breed of management consulting and investment banking. So we've tried to blend those two skill sets because we do two things in essence. The majority of our clients are on a journey to a future transaction. It may be a 100% sale, it may be a partial sale, it may be a capital raise, but it's, it's some means of redistributing the shares at some point in the future. And I would say at any point in time, we have two or 300 clients who are, are, are in that category in a journey to a future transaction. And we're, and we're providing either growth consulting activities to them. So we're helping optimize their growth towards a future transaction, or we're preparing them for an impending sale, which could be a few months in the, in the future. It could be one or two years in the future. So that's one thing we do, which is the majority of the clients the majority of the money is made in the business off the back of the transaction side. So we act typically as a sell-side advisor to companies who've decided they want to sell. And if you'd have asked me five years ago, I'd have said that we are almost exclusively sell-side advisors. What, what's happened in more recent years is that our name has become very well known out there in the marketplace for, for selling consulting firms. We've done over 100 deals now in the sector. And big buyers have got used to us knowing what's out there. I mean, out of the 70 or so people that are in Equitech around the world, we have a team of half a dozen people who are, who are run out of this uh, office here in the UK. 
that are out there looking for firms all the time that, that, that may be potential targets. And, and often that search activity is stimulated by a buyer. So a buyer comes to us, and it could be a big consulting firm, it could be an IT firm, increasingly media firms, because the, the market is, is consolidating and it's sort of digital transformation, if you like, that's in the middle of that change that's pulling together people who once had a, either pure management consulting or pure IT or pure media that's being pulled together and that's causing lots of M&A activities. So it could be any one of those buyer groups that come to us and say, can you find us a firm that looks like this shape? And we're, you know, we, we ought to know what those firms are. And so we'll produce a list for them. And occasionally we end up on the buy side in the, in the transaction if it happens. But more often than not, we still end up on the sell side. And uh, most of the very sophisticated buyers out there are somewhat ambivalent as to which side of the fence we end up in the deal. The more important thing to them is that the deal gets done. And the sophisticated buyers would say, if our target acquisition isn't represented, then we're worried that the deal might not happen, that they're not serious. And if they've engaged someone like Equitech, then there's a pretty good chance that their deal's going to happen. I guess I'll start there because I, yeah. I want to come on to the, the mechanics and the sell side. Yes. I guess just I- intriguing there around what you said around the buy side and how you're, you're almost being retained to search for these yeah. these firms. And and you made the point around the media companies is, I guess I've had a number of guests who have sold, you know, the likes of Don Morehouse, who's yeah. public knowledge used Indeed. yourself. And actually... I know he, he'd sold to a media company. I think many, many people, I guess, imagine when they start this journey that the ultimate sell is going to be to one of the big four or yeah. big six. Yeah. And actually, I'm again, this is my silly question. It's almost, if you'd asked me, that would have been probably my starting point. But it, but it sounds like there's, there's a lot more out there. And almost who tends to buy consulting firms and, and why? Yeah. So it's a really good question. It's not a silly one at all. And I, and I think most people would think the way you think. But the reality is that often the best home and the best price for somebody who wants to sell their consulting business is not in one of their bigger competitors. And they'd be sorry to hear me say that, I'm sure. And, you know, deals do happen with the big four and their, and their lookalikes. But it, the, the best price is often where there is real synergy between the seller and the buyer. And if as a buyer, you're buying something that looks the same as you, then there isn't that synergy. It's almost like you're making a big recruiting effort and you're, you're recruiting 30 or 40 or 50 people in one go and that they look pretty much the same. And where the big firms tend to buy is where the consulting firm has a specialism that they don't have. So they're really into various sort of tech-enabled businesses these days. And as you already mentioned, right, um, they're big into buying media firms. And again, that's because there is synergy between what a media firm does and what a big consulting firm does. But if you're a pure play management consulting firm, then you're probably likely to get a better home. And I'll come back to what I mean by that in a moment. And certainly a better price by selling to somebody that's either in the media world or the IT world or in the general service world, or even frankly, to a financial investor, and we'll come back to those later, because there can be interesting synergies there that you don't normally think about. People normally think that you have to sell to the trade, as it's called, i.e. another trading, consulting or IT business in, in, in order to, to get synergies. But financial buyers can provide those as well. And of course, the, 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 there's potential other synergies are to do with geography as well. And what I mean by the best home is that I wish I had a pound for every 
consulting firm owner that said to me, I'd love to sell my business, but of course we'd like to stay the same. Well, you know, you, you sell to an Accenture or, or to a PwC and you will look like Accenture or PwC within a few years. I mean, it may not happen overnight and they'll tell you, it, you know, it's not, it's not going to happen. And I know with, with some of the media firms they've, they've bought, they've tried to make them look like uh, the big four and, uh, and, have, and have failed and, uh, and they've had to treat them differently because they're very different DNAs. But, but if you sell to somebody that's different to you, there's a reasonable chance that you actually might be left alone and you may be building up or be a platform for building up a consulting capability that then will be used by either the marketing capability or the IT capability further down. And so there's a much bigger chance that you you know, won't be stripped apart and split into the various different market sectors and geographies that might exist within one, with one of the big four if, if you sell to those other firms. So, yes, definitely something that looks different often produces more synergies and that can play to price. And just because you, you, I, I was noting down the, the different avenues you said there, and, and you made the point that actually that, that financial, and I'll, I'll let you explain what yeah. financial means, yes. but that that financial avenue can actually often be a lucrative one for a consulting owner, but also a, a less considered. Almost yeah. why to both of those? So why is it a good avenue and why why is it one that people tend to either not consider or, or maybe don't look at first? So I think it's fair to say that the the private equity community within the general category of financial investors has not, has not done a great job at promoting itself. And so there, there are a number of clients that we, we come across who, who would say, we never ever want to sell to private equity. And, I, and I, I'll give you a, a, a specific on this. We represented uh, Alpha Financial Markets Consulting some years back um, in their sale to Baird Capital. And I, I know they said to me when we first set off on that journey that there was no way they'd ever sell to private equity. And, uh, and if I re- remember rightly, we've, we produced about eight uh, trade buyers, all the big names that you, you might think of. And, uh, and whilst they were produced all prices that were greater than their expectations, which was great, I think their response from the management team in, ho- in total was, we can't imagine ourselves working for any one of those companies. Because in some cases, of course, they'd come from those companies, right? And, and you often get this sort of negative reaction that it feels like you're going backwards by going to your old employer, even though it's your firm that's selling to them. And I'd managed to snuck a private equity company into the list. And they said, but we really like the sound of that private equity company. Can you go find some more? Well, three or four months later, we had another seven or eight on the table and they ended up selling to Baird Capital very successfully. And so, first of all, there's a trend in consulting firms selling more to private equity than they ever did in the past. It's definitely a trend. And uh, uh, if you look at our most recent deal activity of the last three or four years, then something like 40% of our deal activity has been with financial buyers. And, and I think there's a really good reason to this. And, and, and I, I, you know, frankly, 10 or 15 years ago, I wouldn't have said this um, because you, you, you may recall that, that WCI sold to a private equity company. And, uh, and frankly, we didn't do a very good deal. And that was largely inexperience on, on, on my behalf and my team's behalf. We had a lousy M&A advisor uh, who remained nameless, right, who didn't do a very good job. And we did, a, we did a bad deal that wasn't even handed. And uh, if I, I, I wish I'd uh, known then what I now know now in, uh, as Equitech, right? We'd have done a much better deal. But the reason why increasingly private equity is a very good route is that A, the world of private equity has become much more even-handed in terms of the type of deal structure they, they put in place. So it's much more of a win-win deal. And secondly, if you look at the typical board 
of a consulting company that's grown over maybe 5, 10, 15 years, then quite often you find that it's made up of founders and other people in the management team that may have some equity now, but maybe have not got sufficient equity for it to be life-changing money. The founders may have that, and, and it may be that the motivation of the founders is to want to exit the company and take their money and, and go and spend it elsewhere. And if you know, any wealth manager looked at them as individuals, they'd probably be saying, you know, why have you got all your assets in one, in one asset class, which is your business? And so it probably makes sense for them to de-risk that situation. But that might not be the case for the, for, for the rest of the management team. So if you sold to PwC or Accenture or any, any of the, the big trade buys, they typically only do 100% deals, right? And everybody gets treated the same way, right? So the founders may end up with a lot of money in their pocket and may in two or three years' time be able to leave the business. And by the way, rarely do people leave on day one. We can come back and talk about that if you want. But usually there's a, what's called an earn-out period, and that might be two, two or three years. But they may disappear off into the sun or to the beach at the end of that, the founders, whereas the management team is left in another business now with not shares in their business, with in some sort of you know remuneration plan or maybe in some option scheme or right in a bigger company that might not suit what they thought they were going to get. And so so you potentially get this conflict in the board of a company when it comes to sell if it's a hundred percent trade deal. Whereas private equity are much more flexible in the type of deal structure they do. They're quite happy with the idea of founders going off uh, into the sun with all of their money, particularly if today they're not contributing anything to the ongoing growth of the business. And they recognize that it's the management team that's coming through that they need to incentivize with equity in order to get them to grow the firm during the tenure that the private equity company's there. And so it's in the PE's interest to get more shares into the hands of the management team. It's in the management team's interest to earn more equity and then make more out of the next five years worth of growth of the company. And if you add to that that private equity will buy anywhere between a quarter of a firm and let's say three quarters of a firm, and in some extreme cases, 100% of the firm, then you can do very flexible deals at an individual shareholder level. And that's very attractive. And, and I think because they've become, let's say, more win-win partners with consulting firms, because they've recognized that in consulting firms, profits turn into cash quite quickly because there aren't any capital equipment or hard assets to invest the profits in, they can use very advantageous deal structuring that involves some debt when they make the purchase in the first place to make it very attractive for them to do a deal. And so the world of private equity really likes consulting firms now. And I believe it's a very, very useful home for companies to go to. So a long answer, but it's a, but it's a very important point, this. And I would say, don't think negatively about the world of PE. The fact that their marketing isn't great doesn't mean that they are not great firms. They, they do a good job. And, uh, and, and if you look at you know, the ownership of organizations globally, beyond consulting, you're seeing more and more private equity ownership uh, for good reason, I think. And I'm really glad I asked and thank you for the, the in-depth answer as well, because it makes perfect sense when you explain it like that. And actually the the win-win nature and the the incentivization of, of the entire management team, because I, yeah, I think when people think of selling a business, they think of that 100% transaction. And- yeah. And, and there's, there's a problem with the 100% transaction often. I mean, and, and you hear about this when it's really big deals, right? So when big brand name buys big brand name and it all goes wrong, it hits the papers. And you don't hear about some of the smaller ones because the, the names are not that well known, all right? But, but if the founders 
do take the money and go off into the sun and the management team end up as, you know, middle management in one of these big firms. Many of them don't like that. And so, you know, it's it's not unusual for people to leave the big firm that's acquired in those situations unless the big firm has done something very proactively to lock those people in place. And because they've got to fit, and it might be 50 or 100 or 200 people coming into many hundreds of thousands of people, you know, often the flexibility isn't there to make sure the right incentives are put in place, right? So, you know, partial deals and uh, deals at an individual level can often work much better. And so it may make the answer to the question I'm interested to move on to almost more difficult to answer or more nuanced. And I'm, I'm intrigued in that because... Again, to to the way I prefaced it at the start around multiple, yes. you, you hear, and I assume it's for simplicity, just this business sold for this multiple or that multiple. Yeah. And for listeners, and again, you know, I'll, I'll play the, the sort of uninformed card on, on anyone's behalf and certainly my own of that makes a lot of sense in a, I guess, a 100% deal structure of almost before going on to the mechanics of how you actually work that out. I, yeah. I'm intrigued by does the model you've just explained add complexity to that if you're doing individual deals i assume there is a base price that the firm is is built off but actually how does that nuanced structure affect or how does that multiple stakeholder and shareholder structure affect so that, so that is a very nuanced question right and uh, but, but let me <laughs> let me try and answer it in a simple way whether it's a 100% trade deal or or somebody's going to buy a percentage of a company there's always a price worked out for the entire business yeah. And, and if you're selling 35% of the shares, let's say, for example, then you will receive 35% of the cash associated with that. And it might be cash immediately or it might be cash over a period of time. But the 65% that's, that's left will be shares in the, the new co that's created by the financial investor to do the purchase. So effectively, the, the structure is the the, the financial investor creates a new company, a shell company, that buys 100% of the existing business. 35% of it might get distributed to shareholders now, and 65% of it are left in shares in Newco. And then when you go down to the individual level, you might find that somebody is selling 60% of their shares, somebody's selling 100% of their shares, somebody might not be selling any shares at all, depends on the individual requirements of the person, and of course the the, the financial investor have a say in that as well. So, you know, if, if a founder that wasn't involved today didn't want to sell anything, they'd probably have something to say, sell, say about that. Uh, if, if the current, uh, you know, managing director who's responsible for driving everything wanted to sell everything, they'd have something to say about that as well, all right? So those are the two extremes. And, and of course, there are, there are examples all in the middle. But so long as the average works out at 35% in that deal, then the financial investor is, is cool about it. Well, let's come to what I... I imagine it'll be the simpler question to yes. answer, which is the one that you, you team me up nicely for in that answer, which is how do you work out what what a consulting business is worth? Is it simply a case of, of revenue? Is it profit? Or, yeah. or are there more nuances than that? Yeah, there, there, there are lots of nuances. And you'll recall I said I was an engineer, right? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and an engineer moving into the world of corporate finance. One of the first questions I asked when I started up Equitech to a bunch of corporate financiers, and uh, and I had I had the good fortune for a couple of years uh, in the early days of Equitech. In fact, we, we I, I, it's a bit like the the JIT technology name. Equitech used to be called Consulting Development. You know, it, it says what it does on the can. <laughs> you know, and uh, in those first couple of years, I worked typically for. London-based consulting firms who wanted to sell their business and wanted someone to help them prepare for a sale. 
So I did two years of that. And, and whilst I was doing that, many of them were ready to go to market. And I ran the beauty parade on behalf of those companies to choose the M&A advisor, which is a, a horrible process and something that Equitech has tried to avoid ever since. Right? And we, we come back to that later as to how we've done that. But part of that was, is to do with working with a company over a long period of time rather than just hanging around waiting for a founder to say, I want to sell, which is what most of our competitors do. So I was, I was working for those companies uh, trying to prepare them for sale and, and then selling them and, and seeing what the rest of the competition were doing and had the opportunity to talk to all of them about how they valued a business. And, and, and you know, if I talk to six firms, I get six different answers. And if you're an engineer, that can't possibly be right. <laughs> um, so we built this piece of software, right, that, that has 80 key performance indicators that are linked to the valuation of your firm. Because to a certain extent, it felt like valuation was a bit of one of those accounting rear view mirror things that, you know, you, you wonder quite how how you arrive at that, right? And you find out too late uh, when you come to sell your firm. So we wanted some lead indications of future valuation, which is why we, why we built this software. And we wanted the, the, the boards of companies to have a dashboard that they could focus on value creation, value building in the few years, well, actually from day one, in the years leading up to a potential future transaction. But, but in, in, very, in very simple terms, so very, very simply, if you had a business that had got flat revenue and profits over, over a number of years, then if you took the ability of that firm to generate free, free cash flow, and as I said earlier, in a consulting business, most of the profits en- end up in cash at some stage and you know, usually get distributed as bonuses or dividends or something like that if it's free cash. But of course, an investor is interested in a business's ability to create that free cash flow because that's how they get, they get a return for buying a business and buy, buying the shares in a business. And so not surprisingly, it does have something to do with a company's ability to produce profit. And the term that you'll hear most frequently is, is in the UK, profit before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization. Or if you're in America, earnings before interest, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So EBITDA or PBITDA is the point in the profit and loss statement that we tell people to focus on. And you'll hear people say that firms are bought on a multiple of EBITDA. And that's a bit of a shorthand because buyers very rarely look at a business and say, I'll give you five times EBITDA. It doesn't work that way. What they do is they look at the history of the firm, they look at current performance, and they look at the forecast of the business. And, and, in, and in the Equitech model, we look at a six-year period. We go back two years, we look at current year, and we go out three years. And we say, what's the ability of the company to produce profits over that six-year period of time? And if every year was the same, then you'd get an answer of six times EBITDA. Now, you really can't sell a business that's flatlined, right? So this is a this is a um, uh, you know not a real life situation, right? It's almost impossible to sell a firm that's flat or declining, right? You, you need a business that's growing. So growth is absolutely key to the valuation of any consulting firm. It's also the most important thing in generation the attraction of a buyer to you. And those things are, are, are different. There's the attraction of your business to a buyer, and then there's the price they're going to pay for it. And they're two very different things. And uh, so if you're growing, if you can imagine growing over that six-year period and you add up the profits associated with those six years, then the chances are you'll end up with a bigger multiple of current year EBITDA. And so you'll hear in the press and in the reports that we produce every year about deals that have happened that firms sell for eight times EBITDA, 10 times EBITDA, and some of them maybe even translate that back to one times revenue or two times revenue. But those multiples of EBITDA and multiples of revenues are post-rationalized after the deal. 
And the reason why often people talk about revenue multiples is because it's easily accessible data. It's very difficult to get hold of real profit data in most privately owned companies. Even in public companies, it's sometimes quite difficult to interpret what the, 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 the public data means. So people do often use revenue multiples as a shorthand. And somewhere between one and two times EBITDA is, uh, is, is uh, revenue, sorry, is, 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 is a typical multiple that you might get for your business. And somewhere between five and 10 times EBITDA is what you might get, but it's just not calculated that way. It's calculated off the back of this period of time. We use six years. Some people use a different period of time. Some people don't go back at all. They look all future. Some people just look at the, at the past and don't go far into the forward. So everybody's a slightly different way of doing it. But it comes down to the company's ability to produce free cash flow is where the value is created. And of course, if you're looking at a six-year period as we do, where three years are in the future, that's an estimate. We call it a forecast, don't we? And because it's a fancy name, we think it's real, right? But it's, you know, in many companies, at best, it's a guesstimate, right? And, and the, the reason why we've got much more sophisticated on looking at other lead indicators of future profits is because we want to stick a, a hard line under the forecast of a company. Every buyer wants to push down the forecast. So if you're a seller and you're saying, this year I'm doing 10 million, next year I'm going to do 12, the year after I'm going to do 15, a buyer's going to say, oh yeah, pull the other one. You know, where's your evidence? And so they'll get very sophisticated conversations going on about your sales pipeline. And as we know in consulting, sales pipelines in terms of fixed orders very rarely go out more than a few months. So what you're going to sell next year and the year after is often, you know, slightly more of an estimate. But you need to be able to show robustness in your firm and that historically plans have equaled actual. And therefore, there's a chance that actuals should equal plan going forward. And here's all the other reasons, which are the other 80 KPIs, that make you believe as a buyer that this is a very solid business and you are going to meet your forecasts. I'm really keen, and, and if you can't share this because it's the, yeah. in the proprietary part of the model, tell me, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to list yeah. all 80, yeah. but actually those lead indicators, because like you say, the first thing that comes to my mind when you talk about that forecasting is, is believability, is you know, consultants are phenomenally good with Excel and can create very, very believable models, yeah. but like you said, you've got to convince a, a buyer that it's, it's going to play out. So if they do fall neatly into categories, what are those those lead indicating groups and almost the things that if you're if someone listening to this is growing a consulting firm with a view to sell yeah. they should be focusing on on developing those areas to to make sure those kpis are well, as good as they can um, be this is an audio plan right so it's a bit <laughs> difficult a, for you audio, to see yeah. what i'm pushing in front of you right but this is one of our guides right okay. that's been downloaded about twenty five thousand times wow. uh, off, off our website and this is some of the intellectual property that goes behind those lead indicators of performance and we, and we call it the Equitech growth wheel. It's broken down into eight segments. Uh, and it starts at the top with market proposition. It goes around through sales and profit growth. It goes through client-client relationships, looks at quality of fee income, the annuity and repetitive nature of your, of your income, if you have any. It looks at intellectual property in the business. It looks at sales and marketing processes, consultant loyalty, which is all about recruitment and retention. And then last but by no means least important, management quality. And a buyer 
is maybe not as uh, rigorous and, uh, and and sophisticated, right, as we tend to be at looking at this, because we, we, we want this to be repeatable. We've done over a thousand firms using this, this model uh, with data uh, that, that represents those thousand firms. And in each one of these eight segments, there are about eight to 10 questions that enable you to look at, assess, and then improve your performance against those indicators. And, and if you imagine this turned into a radar chart with zero at the center and 10 on the outside, then you get a plot. And the area inside that plot has a direct relation to your multiple of profits when you sell. And that's how it works. It, it's incredibly powerful. It really works. And we've got lots of companies now that have sold off the back of this where they've known the valuation they're going to be getting because they've worked on this model beforehand. And it, it, it becomes a lingua franca in the, in the company as to how they're every quarter, how they're building their valuation going forward. Presumably, to your point around that ra- radar chart, yeah. the closer to zero, either the, the lower the multiple or the, the, yes. the lower the chance of sale, yes. the closer to the, the 10 or whatever the top yes. figure is, the, the higher. A- a- exactly. And just before I come on to digging into that, because I'm sure you, know, you, you you sort of piqued my interest with, the, you've had a thousand firms go through, so I'd love to hear what some of the similarities are. That's available on your website, is yeah. it? So I'll put, it um, is, yeah. for anyone listening, I'll put those, that yeah, link absolutely. in the show notes so they yeah, can get it. Um, and to that point, and this might be the engineering you, Paul, of you've had a thousand firms go through this. What are the areas that almost consistently you find firms are low in? And are there any in there that surprised you? They probably don't surprise you now, but almost as you analyzed that data, you found surprising. Yeah, I mean, there's lots. And what's been interested is trying to rationalize why. And I think it's something to do with, so we'll look at the why and then and I'll yeah. tell you what they are. Go because the, um, the, it's, it's something to do with the way in which most consulting firms are founded and they're often founded by people who work for one of the other big firms. Um, so we were talking earlier about, you know, I used to work for AT Kearney years ago, you, you were at Beringa and, uh, and, and, and many, many other people have come from one of the big four or, or their medium size uh, lookalikes. And you join as a, as, as a, as a starry eyed youngster and, and you get straight out onto consulting on almost day one. You know, in some of the better firms, you may have had a bit of a few months of training, right? In, in the worst firms, you're right, you're literally day one, you're out there consulting and you're not exposed to anything else other than consulting in your subject matter until almost you become a partner and somebody says, here's the sales target. And suddenly you've got to go and find out how to sell, how to find clients. And you might be for the first time exposed to sales and marketing. You might not even know what it is. And and, and I'm sort of making it an extreme point to make the point, right? But your knowledge of finance, your knowledge of sales, your knowledge of marketing, your knowledge of HR, et cetera, et cetera, is probably quite small. And unless you've reached the heady heights of partner in those firms, and you've had to be perform a role about running those very large organizations and worked in amongst people who maybe have other functional backgrounds, you're pretty naive. And, and many people break out before they make partner, sometimes because they didn't make partner. They break out and they say, well, I'm going to run my own firm. I'm an expert in my subject matter. I'm a supply chain expert. I'm a costing expert. I'm a whatever expert. And, and you, you, you're very able to, to consult with clients. What you're not at all prepared to do is to run a firm because you just don't know the full breadth of how to run a business. And I, I was incredibly fortunate in that I worked for IBM in eight years, admittedly in their manufacturing division, 
but it was like every month there was a new training course. They did everything with a bottomless budget. Back in the in the 70s and, and early 80s, they were at the peak of their of their of their power in, in the marketplace. I mean, everybody knew IBM, and uh, you know the, the the you know the probably the preeminent name in the in the IT world. And so they did everything well. Their personal development processes were fantastic. Their training was brilliant. And I got exposed to every different function in business, as well as encouraged to go out and do what I would call a poor man's MBA. Uh, I did three years doing a, a postgraduate diploma in management studies after, after my first degree. It was exactly the same syllabus as an MBA, but done over three years so I could carry on working. And that combination of that internal training in IBM and the, and the, and the external extra education I think prepared me very well for running a business. And that's not the typical shape of, a, of somebody starting up a consulting firm. So I think that's the why. And so the, the symptoms are you go into a business and you have all these people that look the same. They all look like they're consultants that are still in the old, the old firms. There's virtually never a marketing function. If it is, it's something to do with the website or a few brochures. The concept of strategic marketing doesn't exist at all. If sales is recognized, it's called business development and it's the job of the consultant to do. Nothing to do with any salesperson who may have some specific knowledge that the firm ought to really embrace. And I could go on with every one of the other functions. So you get a, a very, very lopsided organization that frankly isn't set up to grow. And, and often they stall one or two years in when their old business card runs out of old contacts that they, they used in the early days of the firm. Uh, and this is a really big problem. So a, a lot of what I've done personally and, and Equitech has done in recent years with its client base is to try and broaden out that capability and try and get them to realize, and I still have arguments today with companies when I first meet them, that actually marketing has its place, for example, and that there's, it's much better to be marketing-led rather than sales-led. Because if nothing else, if you're sales led and, and, and reliant upon the rainmakers in the in the consulting business, you can be held to ransom. And that's not a comfortable feeling. It's happened to me in the past, you know, people threatening to leave and take client with them. And uh, uh, so, no, you have to disaggregate the task of getting new clients into its component elements. And, a, and the majority of that is to do with marketing. And every one of the businesses I've been involved in personally, um, beyond WCI and, and Equitech into, into other firms I've founded, have been marketing-led. And, uh, and still to this day, I much prefer people to pick up the phone to me and say, hey, I've heard about you on this blog, on this whatever. Yeah. Right? Can I come and talk to you? As you know, and as my listeners will know, I, I fully share your, your belief in running a marketing firm specifically for consulting firms. I've had, I've had many of the conversations you've had. I, what you've explained throws up a paradox I want to dig into. But actually, I think there's something interesting in what you've just said. It was a story actually you, you touched on just before we started, because anyone listening, you know, you've had the career you had prior to Equitech, would probably be thinking, well, you know, Paul, you, you built this successful firm, you knew tons of consulting entrepreneurs, and actually, it would be easy. And I think it'd be fascinating if you could just share was how you approached that marketing challenge when you started Equitech, because it, it felt almost so alien to what you've just described and what I think a lot of consulting entrepreneurs actually do. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I think what we did when we started Equitech was very similar to what I did when I started WCI as well. So, so this was kind of well-trodden path and it followed the principle of being more marketing-led than sales-led, all right? So, so we talk about Equitech. As I said a moment ago, it, when I started Equitech, it was off the back of bad experience of the investment banking M&A community. This feeling that, 
you know, there needed to be a challenger brand. There needed to be somebody who would do it differently. There needed to be somebody who wanted to understand about what the clients did as opposed to viewing their business through the P&L and balance sheet. And, and I find the vast majority of our competitors still do that today. The first question they ask is, can I see your numbers? That they don't ask, what do you do and who do you do it for? And, and it's exactly the opposite here. We're really, really paranoid about what the company does, what they do. Uh, and uh, and so, so when I started, when we were consulting development, I, I was out there doing market research on what clients wanted to buy. And, and if I had an M&A capability, would, would they use it, right? Because I didn't. I was a, a consultant masquerading as an investment banker in the very early days. And whilst cons- consultants can morph into many things, right? Investment banking is a, is a, is a very specific discipline, right? And, uh, and I learned some years later that, uh, that it wasn't a good morph. Um, and so you had to bring people in that had that, 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 that trained background in investment banking and corporate finance. But back then I was out there trying to say to my client base, look, if I had this M&A capability, would you use it instead of the usual suspects? And pretty much everybody had had the same bad experience. I mean, there's a funny story to make the point. Uh, When I was doing the beauty parades for my then clients who wanted to sell, I I used to write the brief for the the guys to come in and present. And part of that brief was, was always to give a case study example of a firm that looks very similar to my client. And you'd be surprised at some of the ones that came along. And the one that I remember the most was a company that presented the sale of a fish and chip shop <laughs> as the closest <laughs> thing that they'd done to a, to a consulting firm and, and didn't see... So the this was the advisors, the, sorry, the buyers <laughs> that said this is the closest deal they've done to a... No, this, no, this was the, the M&A advisors sorry, who, yes. were go, who were going to be selling my client. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, they, uh, and, and they didn't see a problem with that. Again, because if you look at the P&L and balance sheet of a chip shop, then you, know, you, could, you could be persuaded to think it's a consulting firm, right? And if you don't know what they do or why they do it, and it doesn't matter, does it? And just to make the point. So when I got the message overwhelmingly back from the client base, look, you know, build that capability and, and we would use it. Uh, and then I took some of the money that I, I got from selling uh, WCI and invested in building the investment banking uh, capability. But the, the first thing that we did was to go out and build a community of potential future clients and we used top consultants at the time as the as our as our route to market tony restell as uh, a biz- business as was back then we knew that they had thousands of consultants in their in their community and uh, and there would be some of those who worked in businesses that might want to sell at some point in the future and so uh, i wrote articles i did blogs i did seminars and then later on webinars when they became popular to create the demand for our services and back then we had people picking up the phone saying that looks really interesting. We then ran seminars ourselves on how to build and sell your consulting business. About two or three times a year, we used to run those seminars and we'd get 50, 60 people in a room, typically owners of young consulting firms who were en route to a future transaction. And, and that's how we built the business. If you go way back to the start of WCI, I did something pretty risky. I knew I needed to compete with the what it was, the Coopers and Librands and Price Waterhouses at the time, right, who were, who were starting to sell JIT services, and I needed to make an impact, and uh, there was just me. So because I'd worked with this guy, Richard Schoenberger, uh, who'd written the book on JIT, I managed to persuade him to put his name to the business, so he became a director of JIT technology. Didn't ask for equity, and uh, it was a, an academic and a seminar provider in the US, but had never run a seminar in the UK. So I remortgaged my house and raised 50,000 pounds to put on a seminar. 
Wow. That was very risky back then. This That's was hugely this, risky. This was in the late, let's say, in the, the mid-80s. And that was a lot of money back then. It still is today, but it was a lot of money back then. Uh, had nobody have turned up for that seminar, I'd have been bust. The business would have gone down the tubes. And uh, fortunately, we managed to pull 500 people into a room, wow. paying 500 pounds a piece to come and listen to Richard Schoenberger. Um, I topped and tailed him, got the reflected glory of, uh, of, of his knowledge uh, and said, and here's how we'd done it in IBM and here's how we'd done it in Thompson TV and here's how I'd done it in this company. Uh, and that meant 500 people in the audience who became prospects uh, who I could follow up with, right? And that seminar approach, I mean, back then you couldn't do a cheap and cheerful webinar. Yeah. Right? You had to pay 50,000, 50,000 brochures to get people in a room. You had to pay up front for a hotel and pay cash up front. So it was a huge risk. Uh, but it really paid off big time. And, 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 and after that, we probably ran another 20 seminars, right, of different types. And that's what drove the, the initial growth of uh, WCI. And I got a big lesson from that. Uh, there's so much in there, Paul, for, for listeners. And, and actually, some really powerful things, like you say, I mean, that first point of, frankly, nowadays, you don't need to remortgage your house. And actually, I think, just to, to help people, you know, this, as we were talking about before, you know, this show gets anywhere from sort of high hundreds into the thousands of listeners. Yeah. And actually, the kit we're all sitting around today, you know, you're probably looking the thick end of you know, just shy of a thousand pounds. You don't need to spend it's, that. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and yeah. like you say, the, just yeah. that, that difference. But also, and it's a really interesting point. And um, do you know the guys over at Kubrick Group? I don't know if you cross paths no, with them. No, not come across um, So they previous guests on the show. Yes. Um, run a very successful data consulting business, but they did exactly what you said. And I think it's something that so many people forget of what you highlighted there with starting Equitech is you actually asked your customers what they want and gave them that service. And I think so often I speak to businesses who, particularly in consulting, like you say, you know, we're being consultants ourselves, we can say it, we, we think we're largely better than everyone else and actually start by what is it we want to sell and yeah. then finding buyers. Well, you, you, you've, you've, you've opened another real can of worms there, oh, go right? On. right? Because, because if, you, if you recall, I mentioned this wheel, right? Yeah. And, and, and the top segment is called market proposition. And, and it's it actually, you know, I, I, I'm washing dirty linen here, but it actually ended up there by accident, right? Go but on. I'm really glad it did because I reckon we've made more money for our consulting clients by focusing on building a strong value proposition in their companies as part of their overall market proposition than almost anything else around this wheel. Because I can't believe to this day still how many companies I come across who don't ask clients what they want, who think they know what they want and try and sell them something they don't want to buy. And the other thing is that if what you're selling today will have to be different tomorrow. And often some of these are, are real fashion things, right? So I mentioned having to change the name JIT well, you know, we didn't stop doing things to do with JIT and clients, but we just had to call it something different because it suddenly got a dirty name a few years in. And so we called it something different. You know, uh, Richard Schoenberger's next book was called World Class Manufacturing. And that's how we got onto World Class International. And we talked about creating the world class business. We were still doing waste elimination and total quality control and lead time reduction, all part of the, the sort of JIT stuff that, that we did in the early days. But we, the point is that we had to change what we were selling. We had certainly had to change what we were marketing. And often there's a very big difference between what you market and what you sell. 
you market the latest thing to attract people into you because every board of every client these days is exposed to so many different channels and they want to be seen to be doing the latest idea. So when they're down the pub talking to their mates or whether they're mixing with other CEOs in, 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 in where they mix, they want to be saying, well, we're just doing this digital transformation in our business. You go in there today and say, actually, we've just brought in these process re-engineering consultants. And they say, wasn't that an 80s thing? You know, why are you doing that? The fact that the digital transformation consultants might be doing a hell of a lot of process re-engineering doesn't matter. The fact is that they've rebranded it and they're marketing it as something that's current. So asking your clients what they want to buy and then giving them that, making it look as unique as you possibly can by putting your own stamp on it. You know, why do we have this wheel? You know, you could talk about some of these things in here in the, the, as, you know, how do you build consultant loyalty? It doesn't sound very unique. But when it's part of the equity growth wheel, right, that's uniquely attached to Equitech, then it's, it's got a level of uniqueness that people want to buy into. They can't buy this from anywhere else, and so they'll come to you. And every firm has the ability to be able to do that. And it's it's so true. I mean, so take you know, taking my business, it was exactly the same path of enough. It was actually this show that started. You asked about how I, how I started yeah. the show, but it was you know for the business was the other way around. Of enough guests said something along the lines of this is a bit interesting. And like you, you know, we have we have our digital marketing framework, and now and that this you know it's no secret is what we have a hundred percent you know. Proprietary, special source. No, are there unique elements and a, a methodology we work through? Just like you talked about your wheel, definitely. Um, but actually, can anyone do create that model? I think so. And it's an interesting, and I, I know it's on your model, so I'd be intrigued in how you you balance this. Is I think in our industry, part of the reason people don't market or sell in the way you've described is is that sense around IP, and and it might have changed because I know you've been in the industry for you, know, you have that full gamut. But I, I, I get the sense 20, 30 years ago part of the cachet of consultants was you knew this secret thing that people don't know or didn't know. I'd be interested in how you counsel your clients on, I almost see that that now is holding some people back of almost, they don't want to market. They don't want to, they don't want to do a webinar or a, like you say, a blog or a seminar because they don't want to give away the gold, you know, that, yeah. that, that golden you're, you're goose. You're absolutely right. And this is one of the big problems, I think, with the consulting community is that they think exactly 180 degrees out from what they should be doing on this topic. They believe that by sharing their IP, that that will bring in other competitors that will pick it up and try and use it and they'll copy them, et cetera, et cetera, and that will be bad. It's been 100% my experience that the more of the IP you broadcast, the more business you get. And yes, you know, there are people out there who do try and copy what we do. And there always has been. We did something similar in WCI with a wheel like this. This, this is not, you know, this is not groundbreaking stuff. But the fact is that, if your marketing is, we've got great clients and we've got great people, everybody's going to say that. No one's going to say we've got terrible people and our, our clients are lousy, are they? I mean, you know, so you're all going to say your clients and your people are great. And so there's no differentiation in that. And I, and I say to every, every one of our clients, and I don't care what their subject matter is uh, in consulting these days, you can make what you do look completely unique. And you need to do that if you could, could compete on anything other than cost. Mm. and price with the big guys because and if you compete on price you're in a death spiral you're going the wrong way so so you have to 
come up with something that has a level of uniqueness that your clients perceive they can't buy anywhere else. And, and, I, and, and as a business in Equitech, we've never yet failed to create that level of uniqueness that drives clients into, in, 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 into, into our client base. Right? So it's really important. And because I'm sure someone listening will be thinking this, is, you know, on yeah. the one hand, you're saying you need IP yes. to, to drive value. Yes. On the other hand, you're saying, and, I, and I'm just challenging yes. to set you up yeah, for no, the answer here, is yeah. on the other hand, you're saying, actually, you should be giving, you know, your own yeah, words, yeah. giving away as much IP yes. as you can. Ha- particularly for the, the engineers yes. like yourself. Yeah, yeah. H- how do you balance, how do you balance that? that? Okay, so... so Again, if you if you look back to this wheel, the intellectual property segment is diametrically opposite the market proposition. And again, that was by accident, but it's really good it happened that way. I, I wish I could say we designed it that way. But because if you can underpin your market proposition with solid intellectual property, i.e. your way of doing things, and, and, it, and this doesn't have to be a patent pending piece of software or right or or anything like that it just has to be your way of doing things that you can talk about and 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 more importantly have clients talk about the fact that 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 you've worked that way that underpins your market proposition then you're much more powerful and and if you look at it from an investor point of view an investor is 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 totally preoccupied with what happens to the people when they take the money do they stay or do they go and this is people being the whole firm, not just the, the founder. Yeah. 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 And, and, and if, you, if you accept that by then, by the time a company sells, the majority situation is that the founder has spread some equity. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer in this. I, I mentioned the uh, 11 millionaires in WCI when we sold. Right? I'm a big believer in, in spreading equity in, uh, in people businesses. Because um, uh, in essence, as the founder, you want people to think like you as an entrepreneur, right, and building value in your business. And that's unlikely to happen unless you have some more people than you, you know, feeling entrepreneurial and believing that they're going to benefit from the shareholding in the firm. So but as, from a buyer's perspective, whether you're a financial buyer or a trade buyer, you worry that, that if you suddenly put a few million quid in somebody's pocket, they're going to be less motivated to grow the firm or they may actually disappear altogether. And what is it that mitigates against that? Well, part of what mitigates it is the business's ability to take what's in the head of those shareholders and turn it into intellectual property. So it doesn't matter necessarily that it's copyrighted, trademarked and all the rest of it. What matters is it's locked down in the firm and it's there to train up other people in the firm. It's there to use by anybody in the firm with the client base and continue to grow the organization. So it's not that we're going to take the IP and try and sell it. That's not, that's not what we're doing. And in fact, the, there's very bad track record of consulting firms taking intellectual property, turning it into hard IP, and then trying to sell it as a standalone entity. Lots of people try to do this with software, right? And, and it usually doesn't work because the, you know, the DNA of a software firm is completely different to the DNA of a software, of, of a consulting firm. And um, unless you recognize that, usually it fails miserably. But it's not about that. It's not about trying to sell the IP independently. You know, we, we never try and sell the IP off the back of this wheel. We use it if you like, as sort of technology-enabled consulting. Yeah, it, it's, it, it underpins everything that we do and makes our service A, unique, and B, much more powerful, B, more validated, C, more repeatable. Yeah? And, uh, and, and that's what you want. And, and, and if I disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow and somebody bought Equitech, this would still be there, this wheel. The software would still be there. The database would still be there. And, you know, and 20 consultants out here who could use that and continue to use it with clients. So, so that's the, the main reason for building that IP. And, and, and IP 
exists in various forms. It, it, it's the IP that you use to consult with clients. It's the IP that you use to do with all your knowledge about your client base and your prospects. So your customer relationship management system, your pipeline of clients, your research and what have you. That's all IP that's of value to an investor, a buyer of your business. That's another form of IP. And then you've got all of the IP about how you run the business internally. So the three different forms of IP that we look to create in our clients before we think about putting them in front of an investor. And it's interesting in in there, actually, the that difference in frame of that value is about sustainability and repeatability within that framework as opposed to i guess confusing it almost with thought leadership if you like no 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 it's not it's it's, 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 you know thought leadership is great in that it might actually help attract clients to you and that's part of the if you like the marketing mix um and, and and an important part but from an investor's perspective, right? So, you know, Equitech always views everything we do through the eyes of the investor. And, uh, and, and we hope to build that discipline within all of the clients that we work with so that they do things through the idea, through the eyes of a potential uh, future investor. And it, and it is about sustainability. Remember, you're taking a valuation from the buyer that's based at least a half on the future. So not surprisingly, the buyer is going to be completely preoccupied with sustainability of growth. They need to be convinced that this business is going to continue to grow. And they're going to assume, frankly, as a founder shareholder, whether you say anything to the, to, to the contrary, they're going to assume you're going to go off to the beach. And, and they'll plan on that basis. They'll mitigate the fact that you're going to, you're, you're going to disappear. And, uh, but, but, but if you can show them that you've got this IP, if you've got this sales pipeline process, if you've got this customer relationship management system, if you've got a personal development process, and all these other things that show you are a robust firm that is built for sustainability and ongoing growth, then they'll accept your forecast. If you haven't got that, forget it. You just won't be interesting to them. They won't buy you, or not for a price you'd want to sell for. It's another paradox, I guess, Paul, but there's something in everything you've just said. That, so I'm, I completely buy what you're saying. I guess there's an interesting challenge in that at that headline level, buyers or investors buy uh, crudely a multiple of EBITDA. And there will be some people listening. You, know, you mentioned around consultants build businesses where BD is done by consultants, market is yes. done by consultants. Yes. Actually, how do you square that paradox of we need a bigger EBITDA, which is a function of money left in the business and yes. profit, yeah. versus we need to build some of the you know the the equity wheel you've just described. And actually, can it ever be the case? And and, and I'll let you dig into this. If you want of almost you have a business that on paper makes less profit, yeah. but is either sold for or or calculated as more valuable because it has those those solid foundations. Yes. Okay. So it is a paradox, and there are some real things that you need to do as a a business that's building for a future transaction. And there are some things that your advisors will do if they've got their head screws on when it comes to presenting you to a buyer. They're two different things, right? So let me talk about the real things first. So if you're looking at building a business to sell, then there are examples of people who've done that in a few years. And you've you've had Don Morehouse on uh, on your program who did it in five years. And I, I was a part of that that journey for three years of that uh, of that five as a, a non-exec in the uh, in, in the business, and I can tell you it's very rare to do it in five years. Dom and his team were incredibly talented and incredibly disciplined, and I think that has something to do with their special services background. <laughs> um, uh, they're the only business that I've ever come across who, every quarter when I went along to a board meeting, they'd met their target, and I didn't want to ask how. 
because I was afraid <laughs> afraid at the answer <laughs> uh, that I get. But they were an amazing business and they built 20 million of value in, uh, in, in five years, right? But that's very rare. So think 10 years as being more realistic. And, and, and you'll know, because I know you've pointed it out with me, right, that I've taken even longer in both my situations so far. I'll come back to that later if you want. But 10 years, I would say, is a minimum to get to the point where you built something of value. Now, part of that is something to do with scale. So businesses that get to, say, less than 15 or 20 million in sales are quite tough to sell. We proved that to ourselves in the early days of Equitech when a lot of what we were selling were businesses that were of that size. And whereas these days we, we're selling multi-hundred million businesses in the marketplace. And it's, it's, it's a lot easier to sell a hundred million turn, turnover business than it is a 10 million turnover business. There are just more buyers that are interested. And so, so trying to get something of scale, and let's say, say more than 15 or 20 million is probably what something that sh- someone should be aspiring to. Um, if they're to guarantee a decent price and a, uh, let's say, a, a very liquid base of potential buyers to go to. Over that period of time, there ought to be time to invest in all the things I've talked about. If you haven't done that and you want to sell in a year's time, that's a problem. But if you know right up front that you need to build all of these other capabilities, it's not just about building the capabilities of your consultants to consult in in the clients. It's about all of these other things if you're wanting to build a business and you've got 10 years to do it, then that shouldn't be difficult. And it shouldn't have a big impact on the profitability of your business along the way because there's a sequence of events. And I'll make a very simple point to to, to, to make the point. There's no point at all in spending loads of money on marketing unless you've worked on the market proposition first. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because you're wasting your time. You're trying to sell something. You know, so your market proposition is we've got great clients and great people. Well, I can tell you that's bloody difficult to market. And so don't, don't even try. Build your market proposition first. So, so there's a set sequence of events to go through mm. that's part of our model of value creation in Equitech that, that we use with clients. And, and that means that you don't have to do everything all at once. Therefore, you don't have to spend all the money at once and you can feed that in along the way. One of the reasons we like to have a reasonable runway in advance of a sale is because we know not all of this is going to be in place. So if we've got two or three years to fix the problem, then we can still probably do it and still have decent profits uh, shown in the business. And w- what do I mean by that? What looks good to us is at an EBITDA of 20%. So, and we've got clients, many clients who, who produce more than 20% EBITDA. We've equally got an awful lot in the 10 to 20%. Less than 10% doesn't really cut the mustard, all right? There are not that many buyers who would be interested in firms that produce less than 10% because you get a blip and it's gone. But over 20% is, is what we try and create uh, in, in our client base. So those are the real things that you need to do. Now, one of the streams on preparing a company for sale, if you're someone like Equitech on the, on the M&A side, is let's imagine a business uh, comes to you, which, which, which happens uh, all, all the time, fortunately, uh, and somebody comes and says, I'd like to sell my business tomorrow. And we say, okay, well, let's, let's have a look at it. And we say, well, if you sell your business tomorrow, either A, it'll be difficult to sell it because of these reasons, or B, you'll only get this price for these reasons. Give us six or 12 months and we'll fix some things that might double your value. And, and, I, and I, I'll give you one specific example. We sold a business in Helsinki in Finland a, a few years ago, and um, we bid to win this business. We didn't know this, one of the cases where we didn't know the business beforehand. We bid against some local guys in Finland to get it. And we told them how much we thought the business was worth. And that was half what everybody else had told them. 
So not surprisingly, we didn't get the gig. They went with a local guy who told them what they wanted to hear. And then six months later came back to us, having not got the sale, having got the prices that we said that they were worth. And then about another six months later, they said, can you help us? First of all, come in and value the business. So we did that. We said, you're still worth what we said you were a year ago, but we can probably fix that. And, uh, and I took something like 16 of their top managers, the, all of them shareholders in the firm. And we took them onto a little island off the coast of Finland for two days with the aim of saying, how do we improve profitability in this business over the next six months? And we put a plan together to double profits in six months. And as it happens, and part of that was shutting down some offices that they'd misspent on. Part of it was sacking some of their shareholders who kept their shares, but took their cost out of the business in the knowledge that when the business sold, they get their money for their shares. Part of it was the, the, the eight that were left became what they were in the beginning, which was salesmen and going out there and selling the services of their firm that they've forgotten how to do and have got, have got somewhat complacent because they'd misspent some money that they'd received from private equity some years earlier. And we knew what the private equity company needed to get from that business when it sold. And we knew it needed to be at least double the profits in order to do that. Well, to cut a long story short, six months afterwards, we sold it for three times that because we tripled profits in six months. Tripled in We tripled it in six months. Wow. And it's entirely possible to do that if you get the right amount of time. And, you know, so improving profitability is, is, is something that we often get tasked with doing to, to get to the right price. And the other thing that a, a decent M&A firm will do in the short term lead up to a sale is to look at the P&L statement and look at those things that are one-off spends that really shouldn't be amortized or, or, uh, or, or depreciated in the, in the year that it's been spent. Now, you do this generally for good tax purposes that you will, from an accounting point of view, you, you'll, you'll depreciate all of that spend. But actually, if it relates to something that's going to give benefit over a five-year period or 10-year period, there is a way of accounting-wise of bringing that out and adjusting the profits. And we look at everything we can to try and improve profitability. And we show an adjusted EBITDA to, uh, uh, to a buyer. Uh, because we know that that adjusted figure is what's going to set their thoughts. And then we'll have an argument about all the adjustments <laughs> later. And, 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 and interestingly, just psychologically on this, is that buyers will accept adjustments that sometimes they shouldn't do if they've emotionally committed to buy the firm. So if they've thought they're going to pay this price based on an adjusted EBITDA, if they then later, having fallen in love with the firm, suddenly find out that one of those adjustments isn't quite what they should accept, they might accept it. Because at the end of the day, you know, a price is only what a qualified buyer will pay to a qualified seller. And it yeah. comes down to negotiation at the end of the day. And, and, that, and that can make a big difference to the, to the eventual price that a seller gets. If I'm honest, Paul, there's so many things in what you just said that we could, we could dig into, and I'm sure we will. But one thing that struck me, and I, and I know, you know the Equitech business model, like you said, has, has, has moved up the sort of the proverbial food chain, if you like, in terms of consulting firms. And you mentioned there around actually bigger businesses are easier to sell. There's two questions, and frankly, answer them in whichever order yeah. makes most sense. Is the first thing to me says why? Because I would almost assume that it's much easier to sell lots of little businesses to slightly bigger businesses. And then the other side of this coin, which is for anyone listening who maybe they're growing a firm and they're in the I don't know, anything under that sort of twenty million that you highlight or ten to twenty million. Actually, what what options do they have if if for call it time for it preference they they don't want to to scale to that size? Yeah. Okay. So there's a different answer depending on what you mean by 
easy. So it is easier for a big firm to integrate a small firm rather than integrate a big firm. And there are lots of examples of big firm mergers that have failed because it is so difficult to do it. And part of the reason for that is that each big firm has its own DNA, its own culture, and one of them is going to prevail in, in the merger that they usually promoted as, whether it's an acquis, you know, an acquis takeover acquisition or, or, or a proper merger. And that causes all sorts of problems. But if you're a, let's say, 50-man firm coming into a multi-hundreds of thousands firm, then it's very easy to integrate. But that's a different question as to how easy it is it to buy it. And we're at the end of the buying and selling part of the spectrum rather than the integration piece right mm. now. Frankly, over the years, I've tried to sell integration services and nobody wants to buy them, which, which, which is indicative of the problem, right? Okay. Is that people don't recognize the issue of integration. And, uh, and it, it is an issue often, but, you know, which people business is at the end of the day, right? And how you do it matters. Uh, otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of the value that you've, uh, you've bought in the first place. But, but at the buying and selling end, part of the problem is firms like ours need to make a fee to sell a business. And if you're selling a 2 million business or a 200 million business, you can make a bigger fee off a 200 million business right, than a two, a 2 million. I can tell you that the amount of man hours out here in amongst this team involved in selling a 200 million business is not that much different to selling a 2 million. Really? Yeah, it is. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's amazing. And part of the reason for that is that the 200 million one is likely to be much better organized. By definition, before, because they've got to 200 million, it, it, it shows that they've got many of the things we've talked about in place to have got there. Yeah. That's not true in a 2 million business. Now, the other thing is that if you look at it from a buyer's point of view, right? So we put out two reports every year that look at the state of the market. One of them is through the eyes of the buyers. And we go out and we interview 100 repeat buyers of consulting businesses. And we, and we report on, uh, on what, on what sort of things they're looking for and what are the trends and you know how they view the market through the eyes of the buyer. And um, in every one of these buyers, there's something called a corporate development team. And it's the same issue for them as it is for us representing the seller. If they can buy a hundred million firm, it'll do what they call internally, it'll move the dial. It'll yeah. make a difference to the revenues, profits, and capability, ability to serve the clients if they bought a hundred million rather than bought a two million business. Yeah. Even though that two million business may have a particular specialism that they really want to get and they haven't got, actually to engage the services of the corporate development team to buy a two million firm doesn't make an awful lot of sense when they could be buying a hundred million business. And, and I can remember years ago when we were selling businesses that were sub 10, 10 million in, in sales, we got partway through a sale to a UK PLC who, who was the buyer. And we just got a phone call one day saying, sorry, we love this company, but we can't, we can't afford the time to do it any longer. We've got this big opportunity in, uh, in India for this massive firm and all the teams going over to India to buy Gosh. this team. Sorry, you'll have to tell your client that we can't buy them now. Well, you know, if you're on the receiving end of that message, you get pretty hacked off. And, and so size is an issue when it comes to buying and selling firms. And that inevitably drives organizations like mine up the, the value curve to, to, to sell bigger and bigger firms. And you're pushing us an open door when it comes to the buyer set because they want to buy bigger firms anyway. And they usually they'll only buy a smaller firm if they can't buy what they want in, in scale. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the, the real specialist small firms do sell 
But it's not because the buyer wanted to buy that scale. It's because they couldn't find that, what these, these guys do in a bigger firm. So, so my advice is if, if, if you want to sell a smaller firm, is first of all, you know, and this, and this may be require hindsight, is you need to be on a real hot specialism. So if you were a bunch of data analysts or you were on digital something or cybersecurity or any one of the sort of really hot topics of the day that we've got buyers chomping at the bit wanting to acquire, there are just not that many big firms out there that have developed that capability as yet to sell. So we, we have been selling smaller firms of, of that type, but they, because they're in great demand, the price for them can often, you know, sort of be higher than you might think that, that the size would suggest. But um, that's with hindsight. If you're sat there doing something that everybody else is doing and you're turning over less than five million today, you're not going to get much money up front for your business. You may be of interest to a buyer, but they'll see you more as a big recruit. They'll see you as capacity rather than new capability. And they'll want to buy you almost like recruiting you. Yeah. Right? So they won't want to give you money, much money up front. And you will get the rest of the money. So they might, value, let's say they value at one-time sales, which is, you know, is, 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 is fine. You know, it's for, for, for a small firm, one-time sales is really good. But you might get it over the next five years out of your own profits, which you probably would have got anyway. Yeah. And so... It's debatable. When you do the business case on selling a small firm from the perspective of the, the senior shareholders, the founders, founder senior shareholders, on what, what financially they'd be better off doing, either selling or keeping going, you usually come up with the answer they should be better keeping on going. It raises an interesting question, and this might also tee up for the you, – yeah. you mentioned something earlier that I, I wanted to come back to, and, and this might be the, the point of almost – well, there's two things. There's one you mentioned right at the start around that sort of finance, that VC model of almost the VC model lets the founding direct or the, the founders cash out while yeah. while incentivizing the management yes. layer below. And, yes. and you mentioned around spread equity and, yes. and incentivizing the team of almost for those people listening who maybe they've been doing their business for, and, and I also, I know you said if it's flatlined, you're probably not selling yeah, yeah, regardless, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. where you've got maybe that junior management layer coming in who, who want to buy, you've yeah. got a senior founding team who want to cash out. I, is that somewhere that, and it might not be the, the, the sort of deals you do but yes. in the market, is, is that where that VC money can help, you know, people in that sort yeah. of sub five? Yeah. So the VC market is not very active in the consulting sector. And I, I mean, venture capital as opposed to private equity. So venture capital, tends to get involved in early stage businesses, often where there's a tech content or where there's something that there's, there's usually some product associated with it. And, the, and, and, and so far, there's not been many examples of them getting involved in consulting. Private equity, I could probably think of only one or two companies in the London market who would be interested in a firm of that size. Yeah. So it tends to be I'd say a bare minimum of sort of 10 or 15 million or, or above that would interest them. Now, there are, like all of these things, there's exceptions to the rule. I've mentioned one exception already, which is if you've got something really hot, yeah. right? The other exception is if they've already invested in what they call a platform company. So they've done the 20 million or the 50 million investment. And that firm wants to grow inorganically by making acquisitions. And there are, there are private equity companies out there that bill themselves as buy and build specialists. So they'll make a big investment in, in a platform company, they call it. And then they'll put money to one side that's usually agreed up front with, the, with the, the platform company's owners to then go and make further acquisitions. And this is a, this is a great thing to do if you become that platform company. So you've got, you've got 
third party money to be able to go and spend on acquiring new capability or new capacity. And, and that might suit the smaller company. Now, again, you might not get a great deal structure. So you may get paid over a period of time. It's not going to be at the 10 times EBITDA end of the spectrum. It's going to be closer to the four, three to five times EBITDA, probably. But it's a way of selling your business. The, the other situation is, and, we, and we've been involved in some of these, is where debt is used or future profits to restructure shareholding. Now, it's so you, you, you can imagine, let's, let's say that there is a, a founder shareholder um, who's ceased to be operational in the business and maybe has already spread um, a lot of the shares in amongst uh, the people, all right, and, and, but wants to, to cash out now. The business doesn't want to sell lock, stock and barrel to a trade. Uh, it's not the right stage for whatever reason. They don't even really want to bring private equity money in, all right? They don't think that's appropriate, but they, they want to find a way of cashing out the founder. And sometimes you can persuade a bank or a, or a debt provider, which will, you know, have similar characteristics to a bank, right? But probably charge you more interest to bring money in to buy out that shareholder. And you may end up with the debt on the balance sheet that then the business pays down over a period of time. Or the other option is that, and for some, we've seen this happen numerous times, right? And for some founder sellers, it's, it's quite they're quite comfortable with this. And this is, might be where they've gone to be a non-exec in the business. They're not involved day to day, but at least they're keeping in touch with what's going on in the business. And they say, buy me out of future profits. So I'll sell my shares. I'll agree a price now and I'll receive the consideration for my shares over a period of time out of excess profits in the company. And that can be another way of doing it. So there, there are many different ways to, to skin this cat. And I think the, the most important thing for if you're a, you know, an owner of a business today is just to be aware of all of the different flavors there are out there of realizing share value and, and when's appropriate in what, in what situation. And of course, that, that's the type of thing that, that firms like Equitech do is to just make you aware of all those different different options and then give you options, real options in terms of finding either sources of, of debt or sources of, of, of equity finance through the trade or through, through the financial investment community. I've made notes of that and there's so many in there that I just, this world seems like one that you don't know about until you know about and there's so many different different avenues to... And, 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 and there's absolutely no reason why if you are the founder and owner of a consulting business, should you ever know anything about this? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. You know, so I can really relate to this. When when we were selling WCI, I knew nothing about this. And frankly, because we had lousy advisors, and also because I stupidly allowed my partner in crime at the time in the business to take the responsibility for running the sale internally when I was running the business and making sure that it, it didn't die, because we haven't talked about that, but the biggest single thing that kills a sale is if the business comes off its growth path during the course of a sale. And that often happens if the management in the business suddenly get in their head that they've sold the business, the money's in the bank, and now they're thinking of spending it, right? And so they get distracted from running the firm. And if you come off your growth trajectory, you'll kill any sale process. So, and how long is a sale? Just because I, yeah. I don't know. How, how long does that think, is? How long is that? Sorry. six months to nine months. Okay. That sort of order. You can do it in less. You can do it in, certainly do it in less if it's a, a financial investor because they're just set up to buy, yeah? Whereas most trade buyers are not as efficient, right, as them, right? So you can do it in less than six months. But if you think six to nine months, you'll not be far off. And obviously, that's a long time for things to go wrong. Yeah. And if suddenly you're 
your your management who are normally you know nose to the grindstone out there selling you know new projects to clients suddenly get distracted for whatever reason either because they're too much involved in the sale process or because they're already spending the money then things can go terribly wrong very quickly right and you really don't want that to happen but i allowed my my old partner in crime to who was a sort of if you like sort of chairman of the business right and i was ceo running the firm to be involved in selling the business and of course his motivation was to just get it sold as soon as possible because he was off to the beach and i was the poor so-and-so that had to continue to run the business. And we did a terrible deal with private equity back then, which, uh, uh, you know, is, uh, uh, it, it was just difficult. But these days you don't have to do that. It's, um, there, there, are, there are very good deals to be done with that community. And uh, if you can't talk about it, yeah. stop me and we'll move on. Sure. But I think, I think this is a brilliant point to talk about your, your latest project and, and both, and I'll let you introduce it as you, as yeah. you choose, but I think both what we've just discussed and almost the shining that light on the the technical part but i guess there's an equally important and almost often overlooked part of actually business is only one part of your life and actually like you mentioned if the journey is not you know if dom is the exception yeah. of five yeah. and the norm is 10 15 20 whatever it might be actually how you make that work as a broader life yeah I, I, I may... I, yeah okay I, I will it's a really important point and i'm, I'm glad you raised it and uh, and frankly I admire Dom for doing what he did because I know one of the big motivations was his family. You know, he, he, he got a pass out for five years, basically. And he was absolutely right to do that. But most people don't do that. And, and, and I have not done that. It's fair to say that over the last 30, 35 years, when I've been running my own businesses, it has preoccupied me to, you know, the extent that I haven't had time for personal life. And I've, I've had divorces, I've had family splits and all sorts of things, right, which I'm not proud of. And one of my motivations to to work on my current project is to try and make sure other people don't go that path. So I'm writing a book, as you do when you get to my age. <laughs> Part of that is motivated by um, uh, you know either either that giant Trevally or, or drag me out to sea or senile dementia will set in soon, <laughs> right? But there's still a lot in the head that I need to get out on paper for hopefully the benefit of others. And uh, and the, the working title uh, of the book today, and and, and 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 there's been several, but the working title today is How to Build a Hundred Million Dollar Consulting Business and Survive to Tell the Tale, and with, with the emphasis on survive there and so it's intended to um, um, early stages in it it's hopefully something that should come out next year but it will go through all of the lessons learned about building a firm a consulting business and it will include all of the uh, the stuff i've touched on here that that, that uh, is part of equitex uh, kind of you know trade of uh, of helping companies to grow but it will also cover how you get a balanced life at the same time so hopefully the same things don't happen to you that that happened to me and it is possible entirely to do that. And part of it is understanding that, that it can't be you that takes the responsibility for everything. It can't be you that does everything. One of the problems, I think, particularly in the consulting sector, is that because you start these businesses with a mindset that you're this great consultant that can do everything, and, you know, and whether it's marketing, sales, you know, product development, whatever it might be, you feel that you, know, you can do it and therefore you do do it. And you don't give responsibility to others, right? So I think the average consultant is not good at delegating, is not good at bringing people into the company to share the load, is not good at sharing equity in the organization and making other people think like entrepreneurs alongside them. And he's certainly not good at sharing the P&L. And it took me quite a long time to realize that one of the tricks to scaling a business is to have somebody 
who thinks exactly the same way as you about part of your business. Not all of it, but part of your business. And if you can get 10 of those, you know, thinking about, you know, as an entrepreneur, a tenth each of your business, then suddenly you take a massive load off you. And I, I, I took far too long to realize this in WCI. It's one of the reasons why it took 16 or 17 years to get to a business that we, 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 uh, um, we, we got to that 100 million. And I'm sure it could have been done sooner, right, had we've realized that earlier or had I have realized that earlier. And, and I hope in Equitech, even though, you know, I'm still in here some sort of 14 or 15 years later, I'm kind of semi-retired now. I spend as much time fishing as I do as I do in the business. <laughs> well, which it's, is, it's worth saying how many days you fished last I, year. Yeah, no, I'm kind of semi-embarrassed about it, but I actually fished 100 days last year. And uh, uh, but, but don't tell any of my colleagues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and... Um, and I handed over the reins of CEO to somebody, a guy called David Jorgensen, uh, who's an American who works out of our New York office uh, some three years ago now. And that was exactly the right thing to do at the right time. And that was just not, not just an age-related matter. It was just, it was time that somebody with a pure investment banking background, which David has, started to take over the business. And we've still got a, a very healthy mix of consulting and investment banking in the business. But that, that, that side of it needed to take preeminence. And, uh, and David came from the, an investment banking background and is, is doing a fantastic job. But it's meant that I backed off to chairman and uh, I formally have to come along to quarterly board meetings. And, uh, and if I come into the office in between those, people say I'm interfering. All right? But, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, um, uh, it, that that's enables me now to get the right balance. And, and knowing when to back off, knowing when to share different parts of the business with other people is, is really, really important. And I did, I did get a, an early message in my late 20s, early, early 30s from a friend of mine whose father had told him this. And he said that, you know, to do what you do, and this guy was a lawyer and I was an aspiring consultant at the time. And he said, to do what you do, you need to have the confidence to be able to go out there and sell to big corporates and, you know, do big projects and all the rest of it. And so you'll never believe that anybody else is going to be as good as you. That's just the nature of the beast. He said, but if you can find two people who are three quarters as good as you each, that's 150% of your capacity. And that was kind of a penny that dropped. And that dropped from the point of view of growing the business and scaling the consulting side and, and bringing in other functional support. What, what the penny didn't drop, however, in that you can take complete parts of your organization from a profit and loss point of view and say, right, you know, you have responsibility for that now, uh, Mr. X, Miss X, right, whatever. And, and that's exactly how you should scale a big organization, right, is to create those people who have part of your P&L and, and are re totally responsible for growing that. And this might either be how you or, yes. or how you will write in the book, but how did you get comfortable with that, was it like you said, that, that piece of advice, that penny drop moment, yeah. and either it was or, or after that, what were the steps that let you take the, almost let the reins off a little to let people have that freedom and give you that capacity? So if you take WCI, it took us 10 years to get to 5 million turnover, which is a hell of a long time. It then took five years to get to 50 million. Now, the first five are actually more difficult than the next 45, right? There's, there's no doubt fine-tuning your market proposition and getting the business model right that you can then scale is tough. And every new market you go into, you have to start that again. So you might say, well, having done that in WCI, why did it take the same five years to get to 5 million in Equitech? Because it did. But it's because it's a completely different business, right? And you know, frankly, with hindsight, 
it would have been so much easier to have created another WCI and we'd have done it much quicker. But that's not as challenging, is it? You know, and there's, there's a certain masochistic streak in me and I suspect <laughs> a lot of others are like, they say, well, you've, if you've done it once, you don't want to do it again. So doing it in a different business, in a different domain like M&A, it took that same five years. But in that next, in WCI, in that next five to 50, it was an awful lot about sharing control on different parts of the business. And, and you do it by experimentation. You see what works. You kind of know in your heart of hearts what should work. But until you experiment, you don't really know. And it's like with, with compensation. I've experimented. I did a lot of experimentation in WCI on different compensation schemes on how you motivate teamwork and individual performance. I can remember one three-year period where we changed the bonus scheme between individual performance reward and team performance reward between 25 75, 75, 25, 50, 50, to see which worked best. And, you know, in, in every consulting firm, everybody has their own spreadsheet on personal compensation. They all know how they get driven and they measure it, you know, every day, it seems. And, and when you change the scheme, behaviors change overnight. And, uh, and I found, for example, in that case, that the 50, 50 team and individual were the best. You got bad behavior if it was 25, 75, either way, between personal and team. Really? Why, why, why was that? Because if you're the type of person that's totally motivated by team, what tends to happen is that the poorer individual performers back off because they know that they're being supported by other people. And the really high performers resent the fact that there are people who have backed off and so it negatively impacts on them as well and it's to say if you if you have it the other way around if it's set, say 75 percent individual performance then people are not very teamy and you get bad behavior the other way you get internal competition going on between people and that can be destructive in a business where there should be a, a solid element of team so we experimented with that and we ended up with a 50 50 and, and it's the same you know if, if there's if there's no writing i mean i i challenge anybody maybe other than David Meister's book on, you know, you know, how to build a professional service firm, to go out there and find books that tell you how you should do this. They just don't exist. And it's another reason why I'm writing this book. I mean, you know, it, 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 there is nothing really in the marketplace still to this day that helps you at that real detailed level make those types of decisions. And, that, you know, I hope the book will put that right. Yeah, and it's something that, and, and this might be a, a later in life myself, of one day I want to release this podcast as a book for exactly yeah. the same reason. There is, for an industry that full of very bright people doing really fascinating things, it's, it's amazing how little literature yeah. uh, or industry knowledge there is written written down, like you say. And this, again, might be preempting, preempting the book, because you touched there around, you know, it was that the five and the scaling to the yeah. 50 was very quick. For those who are earlier in the journey and want to almost start living yeah. by those lessons, almost, how can people start to hand over responsibility in the early days when potentially they don't have that you know, really healthy cash flow to bring in a couple yeah. of partner level colleagues? Yeah, how yeah, how yeah. can people do that? Yeah. So um, you might be familiar with a terminology that doesn't have great currency these days because it's kind of slightly disparaging, I think. But the, the, the analogy of grinders, minders and finders. Yeah, you come across that. <laughs> so, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. I was having a conversation with Dom only a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and it was the first time I heard that. Yeah, so well, I he probably got that from me. <laughs> uh, and I found it very useful uh, to help answer this particular question. All right, so so grinders are the guy, the, the the more junior people who are out there working on the projects. They've got a particular work stream to work on, deliverables to do. Right, and that's the majority of the consultants who are 
out on a, on a on an engagement. Then the minders are the project managers whose job it is to make sure that the the, the project delivers to the client's requirements, and they may also be managing the client. So so different types of minders, but. And then the finders, uh, as the name suggests, are the guys who go out there and find new work. It potentially might be new work in a client, the, the sort of farmer mentality of selling within an existing client, or it could be the hunter type of salesman who's out there looking for new clients, right? Those are the finders. And it's a fact, rightly or wrongly, and you can debate this if you get philosophical about it, but it's those who've got a selling capability who tend to rise up the consulting hierarchy and become the future partners, their ability to be able to go out there and win that new big client, that new big contract. And so if you see grinders, minders, and finders like a hierarchy, then when you're, when you're looking to build your organization, if you've decided that you're going to set up this business, all right? You know, you may be an employee today or you're a, a, of a bigger firm or you're an independent out there. You probably have got some confidence that you've got some selling ability. It, you'd probably be a bit mad to go and decide to do this if you didn't feel that you had some ability to go and persuade a client to, to take your services on. So you'll probably start off by selling your own time, yeah, and, and, and bringing some cash in. And the, the first employee that I brought into WCI was somebody who would replace me in IBM. So remember, I was their, their just-in-time program manager in IBM and then left to join AT Kearney and then set up WCI off the back of that. Well, you know, IBM carried on. You know, when I left, it didn't stop, right? And uh, they appointed new JIT program managers who come, obviously started to get the same sort of training that I got in IBM. So I thought that would be a great ground to go and poach some people from. And they hated me for it when I'd done two or three of these. But I recruited, my first person came out of IBM, who'd got the same training as me in just in time. And they went straight out onto projects. So instead of me just selling me, and I remember working out how many days of my time I'd have to bill extra to pay for them if they were no good. If they couldn't bill from day one, how much of my time extra would I have to sell to, to effectively fund it? And it wasn't a lot because, you know, at the time, you, you know, we may have been charging out, let's say, a thousand a day. And let's say I was paying that person 50,000 a year. That's 50 days. Yeah. Over the course of, you know, a month. Right. That's only an extra three or four days that I would need to bill myself to pay for that person. And that was my mentality to start off with. All right. And, and, and then when you come to the next one where you've got you've hopefully got two of you by then who are billing to be able to fund the next person. And I've never yet found in a consulting business that you ever need to go borrow money to grow organically. You should be able to fund it out of cash flow. So if your business model is right, that you're making sufficient profit the cash that you're making off the back of, let's say, 20, 20 odd percent EBITDA should be able to produce enough cash to be able to fund the next person and then the next person and the next person. And then you're bringing them in typically into that grinding position. They may be then moving up into the managing position. And all the time, they're pushing you into a position when you're spe- where you're spending more and more of your time finding and winning new clients. And then eventually, you find people who come up through minding to finding And that means you're then into practice development. Your job becomes more of a marketing job, more of a building the practice rather than being involved in the business day to day. You're working more on the business on trying to grow it. And that's where you need to get yourself to in building a a consulting business or in, in any business for that matter. The only variant to that is that you may start off with some other people. So it's not unusual for two or three people to break away. And then it's a question of working out in amongst you 
have the debate over shares and things like that to start off, but then work out in amongst you what the skill sets are and how you fit in that minding, grinding, finding bit, right? And make sure you play to the right skill sets to get the business off the ground. And it could be that one of you is really great at managing clients and managing projects and should do that every day and not go anywhere near selling. Another one of you is great at going out and winning new clients where you should do that all day to start off with just to get that momentum. Because if you don't grow fast in the what, first one or two years, you run out of steam. And, uh, and so, you know, not growing by 20 or 30, 40 percent, this is doubling and trebling and quadrupling, right, in those, in those first few years. Uh, you need that momentum growing quite quickly. And I'm assuming for, because you mentioned there around if you've got multiple founders, actually, yeah. you, you can do almost that, that skills analysis. Yeah. I, I, I'm assuming to your point around how to, to bring people in to take those, you know, those finding, minding, grinding yes. roles is almost, you can do that yourself or if you're co-founders as well, it's then just filling, is it, am I right? It's, it's filling those gaps with it the is. right people. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and very soon, once you start to get to a handful of people or more, you then need to start thinking about the functional support and people leave that again far too late there's there's one business out there that is at the moment still in the marketplace that has failed to sell twice once with us and once with somebody else because they never took the advice about bringing a decent finance director into the business and now they're a very big business and still don't have a decent finance director and so having good functional experts alongside the business at a certain point is really important and if you can't afford that decent finance director full-time then there are lots of part-time finance directors out there you can bring in for a day a week or a day a fortnight to start off with. You just need that, that different skill set alongside you to make sure that you're not myopic and, and viewing life, you know, everything as a, as a consultant because yeah. you, you'll, you'll do that otherwise. And of course, there, there is the other option that you can play in the early days, which is to tap into the independent consultant market to help build some capacity. And surprisingly, when it comes to sell your business, so long as it's not 80% of your consulting capability is, is contractors, you'll still get value if it's down at the sort of 20 or 30%. And so from a time-wise point of view, in the early days, if you want to mitigate some of the risk of employing people, you can start to bring some people in as contractors. But bear, bear in mind that when you do that, you only get value from them when you're paying them and they're out billing with clients. The great thing about an employee, if you're utilizing them to the level of sort of 65, 70% on average, you've still got that 25, 30% left that can be involved in helping grow the business with you. And, and you don't get that with contractors, with the best one in the world. They're paid, you know, by the hour, by the day people. And when they're not with clients earning, they're not going to be helping you grow your business, whereas employees will. And that's something to take into account. I don't want to, to preempt the book too much. So, yeah. so I, probably the last one, but I'm... I'm interested in, and I'll jump on something you said and you could tell me if it's the most important bit but but you mentioned around how how you personally you struggled to, to switch off um, and yeah, growing my own business I completely we're much earlier on in the, the journey but I completely understand where that that comes from and I'm sure other listeners do and actually even even those who aren't running their own businesses you know we talked a lot about the entrepreneurial side but I'm sure you remember as well as I do you know, when you're in a consulting firm it can be just as intense to, to be climbing those ranks. Actually, what would your advice be or how did you find work for you to, to help you switch off and, and start to, I guess, take that step back to the point where you can now fish for those 100 days a, a year? I, I think it comes down to really sharing responsibility. And, and, and this is not just about bringing employees in to, to grind or mind. It's, it's having people in the organization that you can look to and say, you know, 
Our task this year is to get from 8 million to 10 million. Of that, your responsibility is 4 million of that, which is some existing client work, some growth in existing clients, some new client work. You are totally responsible for doing that. And you'll be held to account on that. You'll be measured against that. You'll be compensated and you'll be rewarded, right, in share value, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, to do that. It's that, that real sharing of responsibility in a group of what should be seen as peers in the organization. And if all of that feels as if it's falling on your head all the time, that's the problem, that you, you can never stop thinking about it to the exclusion of everything else, you know, including your personal life. And... You know, I'm, I'm 65 now and, and it's, uh, you know, you can kind of look back on your life and say, you know, would you have done things differently? And, and I absolutely would have done things differently from that balanced life point of view. I now know what to do. It's a bit late now. <laughs> um, you know, kind of that side of my life is, uh, is kind of over, right? But I do believe it's possible to do it. And, uh, and I'll hopefully share some of those lessons learned in the book. And hopefully many of your listeners who are a lot younger than I will, will take note and, and hopefully get a better balance. Well, and, and I know I said this before and, and I'll echo it again, obviously being in, in that position now, I'm looking forward to that book. And so yeah. please do let me know. And, and the podcast will still be running by the time the uh, book launches. I'd love to Good. love to help you you know promote that as well. Uh, and actually that brings us quite nicely onto the last questions for today, because we, we've covered a whole ton and, and thank you very much for your, your time on this, Paul. And so the first one actually is about books. Yes. Uh, and so this is, these are questions it's worth saying I ask all of my guests. Yeah. Um, and, and the first one and the answer, I won't let you say it's the book you're about to write here. Um, so the, the question is is to to get your take on really the book or, or books that you find yourself and maybe take the, the firms that you speak to throughout your, your time with Equitech is what, what is that book or books that you found yourself giving to people or recommending to them most often? You know, it's a really good question. And uh, when you mentioned it before, I was really racking my brain on this one, all right? Because back in WCI days, there were one or two absolute landmark texts that we effectively eventually became distributors of, not, not because we wanted to make money out of selling books, but just because they were so good. And one of them is called The Goal by Ellie Goldratt. And he was um, a kind of a, an Israeli expert in issues to do with what he called bottleneck management. And the, the great thing about the book is it was written as a story about this plant manager who had this problem and he had all sorts of personal problems and he had this problem at work. And, and it, it's a wonderful story and it had a massive impact on the way I saw the world of manufacturing. And the second one was that my old mentor, consultant, and then you know, co-director in JIT was uh, Dr. Richard Schoenberger, which was the Japanese manufacturing techniques, uh, nine, nine Lessons in Simplicity. He wrote lots of books after that, but I think his first book, was the landmark text, right, that really explained to the Western world, you know, why it was the Japanese were decimating our big manufacturers. Fantastic book, right? It, it, it changed the course of my career and, and kind of never looked back from there. In Equitech, it's been really tough to find stuff that, you know, you've wanted to recommend, right? I mean, we've got a few texts, but there's none that I would want to pull out as 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 ones that, you know, we would give time and time again. It's, it was, it's the reason... I wrote this tips guide, you know, it's going back now, so almost 10 years, which has been, you know, has been very useful to clients, but there's not much out there. I mentioned uh, a moment ago, David Maester's uh, managing the professional service firm and, and he's had some others after that. And that's, there's lots of content in there, but it's difficult to get through. 
It's not written in a very accessible way. An uh, ex-McKinsey uh, consultant, and it's really quite detailed. But it's it, it's fantastic if you have got you know the time to get through it. But but there isn't much out there these days. I tend to read stuff that's not associated with right. So in in recent times, uh, the Sapiens uh, trilogy, you know, and Homer Deus and and uh, what have you, uh, is been the my reading matter, right? And uh, I, I find that fascinating and. Uh, I've just I've just bought uh, Bill Bryson's uh, new book, The Body, and uh, which I, I think is going to be a great read. But uh, but there's nothing I could really tell you about that that relates to the world of M and A. There's just not much out there. Well, and and I, I know I said you weren't allowed to use it as an answer, but I, obviously, while you're writing the book, and yeah, a legacy like that of David Maesters would be a brilliant thing to yeah. you know to leave the industry because it is. It's amazing how, and it was actually a book, Dom. And yes. again, Dom may have got it from yourself, but but that book, I mean, was it now twenty thirty? It's been around for years, and, yeah. And actually, it's amazing. Nothing has no. has surpassed it. Um, no. I think then. part of it is the point you raised earlier about this lack of willingness of sharing your knowledge. Yeah, yeah. and that comes back to a lack of understanding of marketing. <laughs> yeah, well, and I I don't usually open the question up, but it, it struck me, and um, we were, we will people will have to listen to this bit to find it, but. You made the point there that actually that tips guide yeah. is, is ten years old, yeah. and you're still giving it to clients now, yeah. and, and the value there is is still there. And I think that's almost to your point earlier around you sometimes need to rebadge things, but yes. actually that that thought up front in proposition development can, can last your firm its its proverbial lifetime. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And so the very last question, and again, Paul, this is this might be a chance to recap, it might yep. be a chance to, to add, but I'll, I'll let you decide. And, and this one is, you, you have three people in front of you, and you can give one piece of advice to each. And I, and I know you've, you've seen the questions in advance, so I, I'm doing this more for the listener's benefit than yours. Yeah, yeah, is, um, yeah. One of them is, is just starting out, that 21-year-old, that graduate. One is, I'd say, manager level. So they've been in consulting long enough to, to understand it, to, to have cut their teeth, and it, it's almost that, okay, where do I go next? Um, and then the final one is, is somebody who is, is approaching that partner level, and that could either be someone who is very much going to take a partnership position in a, a, a traditional consulting firm or someone who's thinking, well, you, know, you made the reference earlier, someone who's thinking, well, Maybe actually, do I want to be a partner or do I want to go out on my own? And, and as I said, um, the, the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of those three people? One of the great things about being a pensioner now is that it doesn't matter what you say. Because, <laughs> you know, if people don't like it, they can say, oh, he's old now, you know, and it doesn't really matter. What, what does it matter? So I'm going to give you a somewhat heretical answer. So to the young person who's just starting, go into one of the bigger firms and learn as much as you can. They're fantastic places for learning stuff. If you want to learn how to be a consultant, how to develop a certain subject matter to the point where you're seen as an expert, it's a wonderful industry to get involved in client businesses at a much, much younger age than you would normally do by going into the normal management route uh, that, that I did back in Lucas and, uh, and then IBM. So I think it's a fantastic place to start your career. So go do it, right? See where it goes. To the one who's, you know, maybe the future version of that person, right? But who is now, you know, they've done a few years of that, right? They've learned a lot. If they're in one of the big firms, I think you've got some options and they're all good options, right? So there are some people who just love the environment that they're in. It's a cosseted environment. There's loads of resources around them. They've got a fantastic business card. And there's that, you know, sort of promise that one day they might be a partner and, and there are all of these spoils to come. I would ask you to 
to look at the organization structure and just see the ratios, right, between numbers of partners and numbers further down the organization, and then search your heart as to whether you're going to be one of those future partners, right, in looking at your options. But I think the options are to go and join another boutique firm. So if you don't stay where you are, you'll get exposed to much greater responsibility sooner in a boutique firm. And, uh, you know, pick one of the better ones, right, that's been around a while, that, that's not just been there for two, two or three years. So, you know, your alma mater at Beringa or something like that. But pick one of the, the mid-sized firms and your potential for progression and for earnings and responsibility and challenge is probably greater in moving out into one of those firms. And, and frankly, if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, you can probably go back to where you were before. So I, I would look at that potential. I'd also look at the world of financial services and particularly investment banking. Some years ago, there was a graph on the front page of City AM, which is the local free mag in the, in the streets of London uh, that's out every day that had a graph of income versus age comparing the consulting industry with the investment banking industry. And it was a fascinating graph. And what it said is that from age 21 to 25, if I remember rightly, you'd get better income by working in consulting than you would in investment banking. But at about the age of 25, 26, the graph crossed over and the, the consulting one continued linearly forward. The investment banking one went exponential. And so at the age of 30, you might be earning two or three times what you would earn in consulting. And it caused quite a furore in the, in the city at the time. And, and lots of people didn't believe it, right? But I believe it to be true, having run a consulting business and now run a very expensive <laughs> M&A business, right? The expectation of my 30-odd-year-olds out here is far greater from an income point of view than they ever would have been if they'd have been working in WCI Vold. So I think that's a great place to have good income and very, very challenging work, right? And so firms like Equitech, right, or even some of the bigger investment bankers are, are, are another option to, uh, to consider. The one who's just about to become partner is an interesting one. Go on. um, th there's no doubt the life of a partner can be great. I, I think if you can, and, and I'm not talking from personal experience here, right? Now, I know lots of partners of the big consulting firms, right? So some of them are friends and, uh, and uh, so I know their life. And I think if you are good at managing in the big corporate environment, you're good at managing the politics in a big corporate environment, you uh, are good at protecting your back and uh, supporting your, you and your team uh, in amongst your other very competitive partners, then I think it can be a great existence and you can have no, not only a very good earning life, but the, the way in which you earn is very different to the person who decides to build their own business and then potentially sell. And I've often looked at this and compared and contrasted the two because the person who's in the partnership is earning more each year along the way compared usually to the person who's in running their own business. The difference is obviously at the end, the person is able to sell their business if they're running a business. But then if you look with hindsight, let's say it's a 10-year period and look at the amount a partner would have earned over that 10 years versus the amount of income an owner would have earned plus the amount that they received to their firm, unless they do a really good job of building the firm and get the 100 million or so at the end, then often you find the partner has earned more over that period of time. And also it's been delivered each year rather than waiting for it at the end. And that's also has a very different psychology about your life. And I think the owner's life 
often drive some of the problems, right, of being totally focused on what you're doing as opposed to the partnership life. So I, I have found in the past in, uh, in WCI that the person who's about to become a partner, you can persuade them to come and join you. Once they've become a partner, it's very difficult. Yeah, and they've seen, you know, the, the potential fortune that's on the horizon. But the ones who might become a partner, who, are, who should become a partner next in terms of their progress, but might not become a partner, there's an opportunity to go. So they still have an opportunity, I think, to move out into a boutique firm at a senior level. But probably most of them are going to continue to be a partner where they are because it's the easier route. It's the less risk route. And who knows, it might be the rest, best route for them. Well, and Paul, I think that is a, a fantastic place to leave us. I could, uh, I'm holding myself back because I, I would love to, to dig into that, but we don't have time. And I think that will will hold for the the book. And I'm sure you'll dig into to exactly that decision in there because it's a, a fascinating one. And so the last piece, so firstly, thank you so much for this. But for anyone listening who, who wants to find out more about yourself or wants to find out more about Equitech, either to, like you've just said, potentially look to change career or they're a business owner themselves looking to for support with sale where would you point them to where can they get in touch my equitech email right is the best right okay. and that's very simple it's paul.collins at equitech.com for those of you who don't know because uh, me people get this wrong all the time equitech spelt with a q on the end not a c so uh, equitech uh, with a q on the end so paul.collins equitech.com Fantastic, Paul. Well, I will put uh, links to both. I'll give your email in the show notes. I'll put a link to the website and anyone can get in touch. So all that's left to say is, well, thank you so much and, and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, and I hope it's of some benefit to your listeners. Thanks a lot, Paul. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.